The information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available are for general informational purposes only. Welcome to Rights Here, Rights Now, a podcast about disability advocacy and activism. I'm your advocate host, Virginia Ferris. And I'm your advocate host, Valerie Jones. Every two weeks, we dig into relevant issues, current events, and avenues for self-advocacy. Because someone has to. And it might as well be us. This podcast is produced by the Disability Law Center of Virginia, the Commonwealth's Protection and Advocacy Agency for Disability Rights. Find out more at dlcd.org. So Valerie, we have, as I say, every episode, but it is true every episode, and now more than most, um, we have a much requested topic. We've got Staff Attorney John Cimino here to talk about seclusion and restraint in schools. I am so excited. I have so many questions, so many unanswered questions that I cannot wait to dig into it. Yes, but before we jump in, let's check out disability in the news. In March, the American Rescue Plan was approved, a $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services issued guidance last week regarding how states can use these funds. States have been waiting for this guidance since the plan was issued in March. States have the flexibility to use the money to enhance, expand, or strengthen home and community-based services. The list of possibilities is very broad. Some examples include reducing waiting lists for services, respite for family caregivers, providing assistive technology, offering mental health or telehealth, and various options to help recruit, retain, and train the workforce of direct support professionals. The funding has to be used to supplement existing services, not to begin new services. States initially were told the money has to be spent to March 2022, but the guidance last week also included an extension to March 2024, which states are excited about to continue to enhance services over the next few years. John, thank you again for joining us today. Um, I'm really excited to learn more. Uh, I understand that you're going to tell us about some new regulations on the use of restraint and seclusion in public schools. Before we get into all of that in the regulations bit, can you tell us what restraint and seclusion are and why they might be used in schools? Sure. So Restraint and seclusion are two different interventions, but they're typically discussed together and regulated together because they're both drastic interventions uh, that pose a threat of harm to individuals who are subjected to them. So seclusion is, it could be described as having two elements to it. So it involves isolation and confinement. So if an individual is restricted to a single room or area by themselves, in other words, isolated, and they're physically prevented from leaving, that's the confinement piece, uh, then they're secluded. Um, Restraint 
is the prevention of an individual from moving freely, either by holding the individual physically, um, by use of some device or instruments. So some facilities have what are known as restraint chairs um, and they're chairs in which individuals can be strapped to to prevent them from moving. Or we also recognize the use of medications of a type and strength that have the effect of preventing an individual from moving as a form of restraint, typically called pharmacological restraint. Now, so the second part of your question about why these interventions would be used in schools, uh, the answer is the same as the reasons they'd be used in any setting, and that's to control an individual's behavior. In most settings where these things are used with some frequency and where they're subject to regulation, they're used only when necessary to prevent imminent physical harm to self or others. Um, but in any time that they're used, they're a behavioral intervention um, and a drastic one. Thank you very much for that, John. And once, and let me say, I'm so very excited to have you on here because there's so much I don't know about seclusion and uh, restraint. So I would like to know, um, what if a student um, has cognitive or sensory issues and needs something like um, a calm down time or quiet time? Is that considered seclusion? So that's a great question. And the regulations distinguish very clearly between seclusion on the one hand and lesser interventions on the other, including things like timeouts or self-initiated space. Um, and timeout is actually defined in the regulations. Uh, and it, it's defined as, quote, a behavioral intervention in which the individual is temporarily removed from the learning environment, but in which the student is not confined. And so the second element of the definition of, of seclusion that I mentioned earlier is not present in a timeout because the individual is not physically prevented from leaving the area in which the individual resides. If the individual is taken out of the educational environment against their will, placed in a separate room or area and physically prevented from leaving, that is seclusion. If they're either on their own accord or at the urging or prompting of another individual, removed from the educational environment but not confined to where they are, uh, then they could be said to be taking space or having a timeout or something of that nature. From what I understand, it looks like um, the restraint and seclusion regulations are really new. Like this is something that's just gone into place. Does that mean there weren't regulations on restraint and seclusion in the public schools before like now? That's correct. And Virginia is not alone in this regard. Uh, many states across the country have not yet adopted regulations on the use of restraint and seclusion in public schools. Um, the widespread regulation of restraint and seclusion in other settings really took off at the beginning of the century. Um, the schools were left out of that movement at the time. Uh, and in Virginia, Dating back to at least 2004, at least that's as far back as I've looked, 
there have been regulations that address the use of restraint and seclusion in at least some private schools for students with disabilities. In 2015, uh, two things happened. Um, private school regulations were revised um, and that involved both covering more um, schools than were previously covered by those regulations and strengthening the restraint and seclusion provisions. And that same year, uh, the General Assembly of Virginia passed a bill which directed the Virginia State Board of Education to promulgate regulations on the use of restraint and seclusion of Virginia's public schools. And the regulations that became effective on January 1 of this year uh, were promulgated pursuant to that legislation. So, you know, that gives me an idea sort of legislatively, um, but, you know, it, is there any other reason why this is just happening now or is it just a matter of like, oh, we finally gotten around it? Well, there's been a lot of attention on the use of restraint and seclusion in schools, both in Virginia and around the country. Um, there've been a lot of advocates who have been working very hard to um, encourage states to adopt regulations of, of this nature. Um, and there's efforts at the national level um, virtually every year uh, to adopt uh, federal legislation that would limit the use of these practices in, in Virginia's schools. Um, and uh, these efforts came to a head in Virginia in 2015 uh, with the legislation that directed the promulgation of these um, regulations. There, there, there were some fairly significant incidents that came to public light around that time as well. Um, it, but there have been incidents that have come to light in Virginia and around the country uh, for some time now. Several years prior to that, uh, there was a um, government accountability office report on the use of restraint and seclusion in schools in the United States that highlighted cases from all over the country of really egregious uh, happenings related to restraint and seclusion in public schools where there was no regulation of their use. Uh, so it's hard to point to a single incident and say that this incident is why it happened. Um, it was really a, a, a coming together of a, a, a host of uh, factors, including um, some real champions in uh, uh, both the advocacy community and in the General Assembly um, who promoted the legislation that that, um, that, that brought us to where we are now. So um, you already told us a little bit about seclusion and restraints. Um, can you let us know, do these regulations, um, do the regulations define these terms the same as you did? So basically uh, the regulations of course have more specific language than I used. Uh, I was speaking a little more colloquially, um, but they basically track um, what I described initially. So they define restraint as meaning mechanical restraint, physical restraint, or pharmacological restraint. And they individually define each of those. Um, it, and, and the definition of those is very similar to what I described earlier. I'd say one of the key differences between the regulatory language and what I described um, is that the regulatory language contains 
exceptions or carve-outs or explanations of what doesn't constitute restraint or seclusion. And some of what are in these exceptions areas are really just examples of things that don't meet the underlying definitional criteria. And others are things that seem to carve out things that would meet the basic regulatory definition, uh, but essentially carves those out of the regulatory provisions. So an example of that would be um, in the definition of restraints, uh, I mean, excuse me, of seclusion. One of the carve outs is uh, the restriction of a student alone in a room from which they cannot leave. So you remember being alone, being confined, not being able to leave um, meets the definition of seclusion. But if the child is confined to a room from which they cannot leave during the investigation or questioning related to a violation of the code of student conduct, that's accepted from the definition of seclusion. Uh, this can be a pretty sweeping uh, exclusion, depending on how this is implemented and, and interpreted. Um, if, if you've ever read a code of student conduct, you know that it prohibits everything from uh, the very, very extreme to the very, very frivolous. Um, you're wearing a an inappropriate t-shirt can constitute a violation of the student code of conduct, um, but so can quite extreme behavior like um, brandishing weapons. So um, I'd say that's the, the biggest distinction between what I described earlier and what the regulations have is this, um, this language. Um, and the language in the regulation, I would say is, um, pretty similar though, um, aside from, from that exception, pretty similar to what I described and what you'll find in most regulations or statutes that address restraint and seclusion. So do we know about how often restraint and seclusion are being used in Virginia schools? That's a really good question. And unfortunately, uh, there, there is some data on restraint and seclusion use in Virginia and around the country, but it is unreliable and we know that it's incomplete. So the, there's no requirement, well, there was no requirement prior to January 1, 2021 for schools to document and report incidents of restraint and seclusion that occur in their schools. The US Department of Education though, uh, through its um, Office of Civil Rights and its Civil Rights Data Collection Project does collect data from school divisions on the use of seclusion and restraint. That data suggests that the incidents of these practices is far less frequent than we know it to be. Um, so for instance, in 2015-2016 school year, um, more than half of Virginia's school divisions reported zero incidents of restraint or seclusion, including school districts that we know from subsequent investigative reporting, in fact, had large numbers of restraint and seclusion. Uh, one school division in particular had 
more incidents of seclusion and restraint, according to investigative reporting, than were reported for the entire state of Virginia that year. So what we don't know is the extent of the use of these practices. We do know from the data that is available, and this is true regardless of what data you're looking at, that these practices are used disproportionately on students with disabilities and students of color. And so, and, and even though the data is incomplete, that story is told repeatedly by every data point that's available. Okay, so um, I have a two-part question. The first is, um, when do regulations allow for the use of restraints and uh, seclusion? And the second part to that is, do parents have to be notified when restraints or, seclu or um, seclusions are used? Yeah, thanks for that question. You know, the limitations on the use of restraint and seclusion and requirements for notification and reporting of their use are really the meat and potatoes of these regulations. Um, and so when can they be used? The language in the section of the regulations that speaks to when they can be used is, I'm sorry to say, a little more convoluted than I think it should be. But it really boils down to um, really two things. So restraint and seclusion can be used to prevent physical harm to self or others. And then it can be used to obtain possession of weapons, dangerous objects, or controlled substances or paraphernalia. Uh, there's some convoluted language in there, as I said, but if you boil it down, that's what it comes down to. There's an important part of the regulations that speaks to when seclusion and restraint may not be used. Uh, and they may never be used to punish a student. Uh, they may not be used as a form of discipline. Restraint and seclusion are emergency interventions of last resort. They're not teaching events the way that discipline uh, is supposed to be. They may not be used as coercion or retaliation. And this one's important they may not be used for the sole purpose of preventing property destruction. Property destruction in and of itself without a threat of harm to self or others is not an acceptable reason for using restraint or seclusion. Now, the other part of your question about notification, um, the regulations require that any time a restraint or seclusion occurs, uh, the school has to make reasonable efforts to communicate by telephone or other agreed upon means with the parent to inform them of the occurrence of the restraint on the day that it occurred. Uh, there's a minor exception to this for restraint or seclusion incidents that occur after the regular school day. So if there's an evening event at the school and restraint or seclusion occurs, during that event, that notification may not um, occur that day, um, but it has to occur in accordance with the school's emergency plans for making that notification. But generally speaking, reasonable efforts for same day notification have to be made. The, the, there's a second part to this that's also really important, 
And it's that anytime a restraint or exclusion occurs, there has to be an incident report completed uh, explaining what happened, why it happened, uh, et cetera. And that incident report has to be provided to the parent within seven days of the incidents. So they need reasonable efforts for same day notification plus a written incident report within seven days of its occurrence. Both of these are really important. And although this may go a little beyond your question, I think it's also important to note that in addition to those immediate notification requirements, we spoke already about the lack of data in this area. That notification then results in um, documentation of the incidence of restraint that needs to be reported up the chain. First, it's immediately reported to the principal. Ultimately, incidents are reported to the superintendent. Superintendent annually reports incidents within their school divisions to the Virginia Board of Edu uh, Virginia Department of Education. And so we should, in years to come, have much better data on the use of these practices than we do today. I might be showing my bias here. Seclusion restraint sounds kind of bad. <laughs> sounds kind of bad, John. Uh, <laughs> and really intense and possibly traumatic for the child or juvenile, because I feel weird about calling teenagers children, but like, this is clearly a traumatic thing. What do the regulations say about preventing the use of restraint and seclusion? Yeah, and that's a really important point. The Usually when we talk about restraint and seclusion regulations, we talk about when they can be used, what the limitations on their use are, but there are important provisions in the regulations focused on prevention. Um, one of those is that for any student who has an IEP or a 504 plan, there is now a requirement that the team consider whether that student's behaviors place that student at risk of being restrained or secluded. And if they do, they are to consider the need for things like a new functional behavioral assessment or a new behavioral intervention plan, um, or adding new behavioral goals to their plan. And so that's the first thing. The second is any time that there are restraint or seclusion incidents that occur on two different school days within the same school year, if the student has an IEP or 504 team, that team is to convene in order to discuss the items that I just discussed. Um, mentioned a moment ago. So they're to convene to discuss the behavior and how to prevent it. Do we need a new functional behavioral assessment? Do we need a new behavioral intervention plan? Is there something else we should be doing to prevent the occurrence of these interventions? And even for students who don't have an IEP or 504 team, there's a requirement that after the two days on which these are used in the same school year, that a team be convened, which includes many of the same individuals who would be on a 504 or IEP team. So these are the, um, the principal prevention mechanisms 
contained in the regulation. There's the initial consideration at any IEP or 504 team meeting, and then there's the follow-up after successive use of these interventions to plan for how to avoid their recurrence in the future. Okay, so John, you have provided so much information, um, especially since this um, regulation and seclusion hasn't um, came into effect until 2021, no one, you know, it's just so much information. Um, and since it just um, didn't come about until 2021, can you tell me under the uh, regulations, are schools and staff, um, are they required to uh, be trained to de-escalate an issue that could potentially lead to seclusion or restraints? This is another important component of the regulations. and. Um, they speak to training uh, in two different levels. And so all school personnel are required to receive initial training. And that initial training is to cover two things. Uh, one, skills such as positive behavior support, conflict pr um, prevention, de-escalation, and two, the content of the regulations that we're discussing now. And so what all school personnel have to receive is training in interventions and training in the regulations that limit the use of restraint and seclusion. Then there's a requirement that at least one administrator in each school building where restraint and seclusion may be used and any school personnel who are assigned to work with individuals who are determined by their 504 or IEP team to be at risk of restraint or seclusion, they have to receive advanced training in the actual implementation of restraint and seclusion to ensure that individuals who may be using these interventions at least know how to do so um, purportedly safely. The, and I want to point out the um, you know, we, we talked about prevention a moment ago, uh, but this is another thing that really speaks to the prevention piece. I think it's important that the training that all school personnel have to receive is not training in how to restrain and seclude people. One of the things that a lot of people were worried about with this initiative was, you know, um, there are a lot of people who may not even... You know, a lot of teachers have never seen a restraint or seclusion implemented. A lot of teachers have never thought of doing these things. Are we going to actually, by putting this in regulation and telling people what they can do, encourage people to do it? And, you know, the, that's certainly not the intent of these regulations. And the focus on training people on de-escalation, on crisis prevention, and on the limits of the use of these things and not on training people to use them as important. Yeah, that um, that reminds me, like right after I started at DLCV, because seclusion and restraint was a hot topic even then, like seven years ago. Um, I was trying to explain some of the stuff that we do to my partner's um, stepmother who had been a teacher for something like 35 years. And she was like, oh no, honey, you misunderstand. Seclusion restraint doesn't happen in schools. And I'm like, it does. It does, Linda, it does. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that it's 
a little reassuring to know that some teachers are apparently so against it that they don't even know it exists, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be regulations around it. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it sounds like the regulations require each like local school system to adopt policies and procedures on restraint and seclusion. Are they allowed to adopt something that straight up prohibits or is, you know, much more likely to, or much more unlikely to impose those than sort of the, the, the larger set of regs? Absolutely. The regulations, uh, they actually include the following statement, quote, nothing in this chapter shall be construed to require a school division to employ physical restraint or seclusion. Regulations, and this is true of these regulations at most, they establish a floor. They don't establish a ceiling. And school divisions can be as restrictive as they would like in their promulgation of policies and procedures for the use of these, of, of these interventions, so long as they at least meet the minimum required by regulation. And some school divisions have gone further than the regulations, notably Fairfax County has recently adopted policies and procedures that will phase out the use of seclusion in their public schools. Um, that's huge. We're not seeing a lot of school divisions run to that option, but that option is there. And uh, as you mentioned, school divisions that choose to implement restraint and seclusion must have policies and procedures on their use that are consistent with these regulations. And those policies and procedures have to be made publicly available and they have to be reviewed annually. Um, anyone can review the policies and procedures in their school divisions um, and anyone can comment to their school boards to encourage them to adopt stricter restrictions on their use than the regulations require. And that may be the next front on the restraint and seclusion advocacy effort is local advocates um, having their voices heard by their school boards and encouraging them to adopt regulations that are consistent with their views on their use. All right, John, thank you again so much for coming to talk to us. You've raised a lot of good points. You've raised my concerns about at least a couple of school divisions. Um, hopefully we will have you back on real soon to talk about this issue more and to talk about some other um, special education children's rights issues. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you for having me on and thank you for covering this important topic. Uh, it's, uh, you know, these regulations are brand new. Um, the issue, as you mentioned, has been around for years. Um, but uh, this is an opportunity to improve people's education in the area. So definitely need to get the word out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And now the DLCD highlight. 
Last September, DLCV hosted a one-day virtual expo to help educate Virginians about the history and protection of the Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA. It was a day filled with learning, networking, and growth for professionals, decision makers, advocates, and people with disabilities. Due to the success of last year's event, DLCV has retooled the event to be a one-day virtual summit. This year's theme will focus on the intersectionality of social justice and racial equity for people with disabilities. Please mark your calendars for Thursday, September 23rd, 2021 from 9.30 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. for a day of resource and knowledge sharing that you will not want to miss. This event is free and open to the public. So thank you one more time to John Semino for being willing to come and explain these new, much, 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 much needed regulations to the use of seclusion and restraint in schools. Oh my God, why haven't these existed for longer? Yes, my questions were answered and I still have a ton more. <laughs> yes, sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes it happens that way. Um, I'm pretty sure we're going to have John back really soon. Um, I hope so. We stopped rolling. We we bombarded him with questions for about an additional 20 minutes. So there's there's still more stuff to get to, listeners. But thank you all for listening to this episode of Right Here, Right Now, brought to you by the Disability Law Center of Virginia. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. If you need assistance or want more information about DLCV and what we do, visit us online at dlcv.org. Follow us on Twitter at DisabilityLawVA and share us with your friends. Until next time, I'm Valerie. And I'm Virginia. And this has been Rights Here, Rights Now.